Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. The story presented to us today in this gospel for the 16th Sunday in Trinity Tide is of Jesus encountering a funeral procession at the gates of a city called Nain. A considerable crowd, St. Luke tells us, from the city were gathered around a woman following the funeral bier of a young man. The woman, Jesus discerned, was a widow, and this was her only son. Understanding the pain this woman was feeling at the loss of both her husband and now her son, but also knowing that by law she couldn't inherit any land or property and would be at the mercy of whatever extended family or friends or neighbors she had to support her for the rest of her life. Jesus had compassion on her. He stopped the funeral, gave a word of comfort to the woman, and then raised up the young man from the dead, delivering him back to his mother. This story is one of three examples in all of the Gospels of Jesus raising a person from the dead. You might not have known that. Jesus does a lot of miracles, but only three times do we hear of him raising someone from the dead. And those three stories aren't even in all of the four Gospels. The other two stories are in all of the synoptics, and that's when Jesus went to the house of a synagogue ruler named Jairus to raise his young daughter who had just died. The other, of course, is when he raised Lazarus from the tomb, which is actually only told in the Gospel of St. John. Our story today is only told in the Gospel of St. Luke. But together, these three stories are presented to us in our Holy Scriptures, our New Testament. St. Augustine, reflecting on this, seems to assume that Jesus probably raised many more people from the dead, just as he healed more people than could be told. And just as St. John at the end of his gospel says, if we were to tell everything that Jesus did, I suppose there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold all the accounts. But the fact that only three instances were recorded and preserved in the gospels is clearly by providence and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And understanding this, the church fathers have uh, meditated on each of these stories and discerned in their differences and similarities some spiritual lessons that we can glean and learn. One of the ways that these stories can teach us is by seeing how, since each story deals with death, we can learn something about the ways of sin, as sin and death are linked. The wages of sin is death. St. Augustine, St. Gregory the Great, and St. Bede the Venerable, among a lot of others, I'm sure, all reflected on how these stories can teach us about sin. Because sin, like death and darkness, has no nature of its own, but instead is a privation. It's the absence of something else that has a real nature. Darkness is the absence of light. Death is just the absence of life. And sin is merely the absence or failure to live according to the way of God, the will of God. The classic definition of sin is simply missing the mark. Uh, in all of these absences or failures can be seen at times in different stages or states or degrees. Darkness, of course, can be more or less dark depending on the amount of light. That's something that we see visually and understand readily, but maybe less so uh, obvious to us, both sin and death can also have their degrees, hence the stories. 
In one story, Jesus raised a little girl, the daughter of Jairus, who was the ruler of a local synagogue, who had just died and was still lying in her bed. In today's story, the young man had died recently, but was already removed from his deathbed and had brought out into the open and was on his way to being buried. In the third story, the dead man was dead and already buried, having been buried for four whole days. The saints have seen in this progression of these degrees of death a figure of the rot of sin in us, beginning with the entertaining of sin in our minds and hearts, still closed within us, but still obviously something very serious notwithstanding. As Jesus assures us, if we look lustfully or hate inwardly, we are becoming adulterers and murderers in our hearts. But then sin becomes more serious as it takes external action and turns into actions, thoughts into actions, brought out into public, as it were, into the light of day. But then sin reaches its fullest progression when in becoming habit, it buries the person, binds them up and traps them, and they in themselves become spiritually putrid and stink. We also see different um, interactions of Jesus with these different situations. In every instance, Jesus speaks to the dead person and they are restored, but the person only recently dead, Jesus actually takes by the hand before speaking. The person who's born outside isn't touched directly, but Jesus touches the bier on which he is laid. He also, in this instance, we read that Jesus had compassion. We're not, uh, th there's no mention of Jesus' attitude or feeling or anything like that in the story of the, the young girl, but in the story of the young man in the funeral possession, we read that Jesus has compassion. And in the case of the man buried four days, Lazarus, Jesus didn't touch him or the tomb or anything, but stood at a distance. But we also read in that instance from St. John, he tells us twice that Jesus was deeply moved and even that he wept, so much so that everyone around said, look at how much he cared for him. So regardless of if the person was only recently without breath or if their body was already beginning to be corrupt, it only takes a word of God to restore life. None of these are challenges to God's power. That's not, there's no difference in the effort God puts into raising the dead in any of these stories. The, the differences that we see all have to do with the level of corruption of death and also in Jesus' uh, reaction to the people depending on how far death has, has been imposed on a person. The more death, the, the more serious the deathly state and the more grief of the people, the more we see Jesus' compassion raised, but not his power challenged. Um, because it, don't, it isn't only you know, the dead people who themselves get restored in these miracles, but it's also the parents of the little girl, the widowed mother of the young man, and the sisters of Lazarus not to mention the whole extended crowd of family and friends and neighbors who are there mourning also. So in today's story, those are, those are the similarities and differences we see in the three, but in looking today specifically at the story that our lectionary has presented us for this Sunday, there's something unique about it in that it matches very closely a pattern that we see elsewhere in scripture. Today's story closely resembles the raising of 
the Shunammite woman's son that uh, the prophet Elisha did in 2 Kings, and especially the raising of a widow's son that the prophet Elijah performed in 1 Kings 17. Why this is so interesting is because in both of those Old Testament stories and in today's, it's primarily the compassion on the mother that inspires the holy work, the miracle. Jesus looks at the mother and has compassion on her. The scripture doesn't say that he looks at the young man and has compassion on him, but rather at his mother. He is moved with compassion because of the loss currently being experienced by the mother. Now, in raising up uh, this, this young man, the son of this bereaved woman, clearly Jesus is stepping into this pattern of Elijah and Elisha. And it seems like the people realized that. These people knew their scriptures. They attended synagogue regularly, and they would hear of the stories, especially possibly of uh, Elisha um, uh, raising the bereaved woman's son in uh, Shunem, which was geographically very close to the city of Nain. They're, they're very close together. And so the city of Nain, the people there would have known of that place and knew clearly of that story. And so when Jesus does this, they perceive there's a great prophet among us. But one of the differences between both what Elijah and Elisha had to do in raising those two dead boys and what Jesus did was Elijah and Elisha both go into where the young dead boy was, stretch themselves out on them as if to, to say, I, I am taking your place symbolically. I'm laying on you and imparting the, the warmth and vitality of myself to you. And they pray to God desperately. God, hear my voice. Let this boy come back to life. So there's symbol and action. There's desperation in their prayer. Jesus simply speaks a word. The prophets have to uh, go to God and it's through God's power and authority that the miracles are worked through them. Jesus, as God, speaks of his own power and authority. So not only did the people say a great prophet has come among us, but they rightly, whether they knew it or not, also said God has visited his people. And this is true. God incarnate was there walking among them. I'm not saying that any of them had anything like what we have in our Trinitarian uh, Nicene faith that we will uh, affirm in just a moment that we believe that God truly became incarnate, God of God, light of light. But the people experienced something that they had no theology for. They didn't have the understanding to articulate what they saw, but what they knew was that God had visited his people. And as beautiful and wonderful as it is for us to be able to articulate what we know to be true, we also prayed God will let us experience that same reality, to let us know in our heart of hearts, to feel, to recognize, to understand, and to apprehend fully God's presence here with us. And today especially, God's with us all the time, but today especially, here we are, where? Gathered under the wings of our mother, the church. And each of us, at any degree of sin, whether we have only thought things, whether we have turned thoughts into actions and sinned out in the open, or whether we feel completely trapped and helpless and buried and bound under habitual sin. 
God can restore us. God does restore us. It's no challenge to his power. All you have to do is ask. And he will restore you to your mother, the church. The church that looks at each of us as if we are her only child. Obviously, there are a lot of us here, but each one of us is worth infinite value. Like the lost coin or the lost sheep, it doesn't matter how many there are. If one is lost, stop everything, go and look. That's the one that needs to be found. Each one of us are the only son of our mother, the church. And God wants to restore us to her. He wants to bring not only us back to life, but to restore our connections and our relationships with those around us so that we can plug back into, become a part of the family of God, become a functioning member of the body of Christ. There are all kinds of images that we use for this, but the point is, when God heals us, he heals not only us. It's not just us that are restored. It's our relationships with everyone else. Because as persons, that's almost the definition of a person. We are not individuals. We're persons intimately connected with each other. There's a word for this in English. I learned recently that T.S. Eliot, I think, was actually, no, was it Eliot? Who was it? It was one of the, the romantic poets actually coined the term, but it's now being used uh, for the Greek term perichoesis, which is this idea of um, the intercommunion, the full intercommunion of individuals with each other so that they are fully persons. And the word is coherence that we have now in English. We co-inhere with God, co-inheres within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But he opens up that coherence to invite us in. And by our nature, we are supposed to do that with our brothers and sisters. C.S. Lewis mused once that to look at the uh, history of humanity through, throughout time, we should look at it less as a bunch of little, you know, individual dots just perpetuating through time, and more like a growing organism, a tree, in which we are all connected. All of us are connected back through time to our parents, Adam and Eve, right? But what's more remarkable is that the fount of our humanity, Adam, we now have a new fount. When Jesus entered the human tree, he became the new head. That's why we say he recapitulates, recapitulates. He's the new head, the new head of humanity. We are now all in him. We also have imagery in, in our um, Advent hymnology about him being both the fruit of the, the tree of humanity, but also its root. You know, the root of Jesse, the root of the Hebrews, the root of humanity is Christ. He is there. He's the root and the fruit. He's the head. He's the whole body. That's why he is the true vine. And none of us have life unless we're in him. But if we are in him, then we're also all in each other. So today's story and all of the other stories of Jesus restoring those to the dead, uh, from the dead, aren't just miracles of bringing someone back to life for a little while. They're signs to show us that what God intends to do is to restore relationship, to restore everything that will be dead to new life. That's the plan, that's the macro plan for the whole cosmos, for the whole of creation. And he does these signs within time, not just for the sake of the individuals or even the, the immediate community, but for us, for our sake, to show us who he is and what he intends to do for us all. Let us... Rejoice in that and be assured that God, as we are here, 
restored to our mother today, is visiting us and that he will co-inherit within us as we receive him sacramentally in the Holy Eucharist. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.